Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Music has always been a way to address change from civil rights to no nukes. But what about climate change? I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. As we think about Earth Day, we explore Rock's relationship with the environment with author and activist Bill McKibben. Plus, we'll review the latest from Sound Opinions vets, Parquet Courts. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and as music lovers know, on April 21, one of the giants of the music business for the last half century, singer, songwriter, guitarist, producer, towering figure in R&B, rock, and pop, was found dead in his home in Minneapolis. Prince was 57 years old. We will devote next week's show to the life and career and, of course, the music of Prince. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the song Sugar Daddy by Sturgill Simpson. Fans of the HBO series Vinyl will recognize it instantly. It's the theme song. Vinyl just wrapped its first season, and it had a lot of viewers, all music lovers, eager to see how executive producers Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger would bring 1970s New York, the record industry, and the music scene to life on the small screen. The show stars Bobby Cannavale as a struggling label head in New York City back in the day. The reviews have been mixed, but no doubt, this show knows and loves the music. And that's in large part to its music supervisor, Randall Poster. This isn't the first time he's collaborated with Martin Scorsese. He's worked with him on The Aviator, Hugo, and The Wolf of Wall Street. And he's also been the music supervisor on School of Rock, Velvet Goldmine, Carol, and has done a lot of Wes Anderson movies from Rushmore to Grand Budapest Hotel. Randall Poster joins us now to talk about this season of Vinyl and his other projects. Randall, welcome to Sound Opinions. Oh, thank you. Now, Vinyl has just aired its season one finale to a lot of buzz. How'd you get involved with that project? Um, Well, I've been lucky enough to work on a few film projects with Martin Scorsese, starting with a film called The Aviator. Mm -hmm. And then he asked me to get involved with a show called Boardwalk Empire that had played for five seasons on HBO. And many of the creatives from from Boardwalk Empire transitioned into vinyl, and so that's how I, I I got involved. Very different styles of music, though, between what was going on in Boardwalk Empire and vinyl now. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. Boardwalk Empire, the first season, was set in 1920, um, which is really a period where very few people have a real firm grasp of what was on the hit parade, and so it really was a lot of research and a lot of consultation with historians and and musicologists who, who, who were anchored in that period. 1973, the year that we live in um, vinyl, everybody seems to be an expert in 1973. <laughs> and so I, I sort of had to double down and really push to, to 
anchor myself as an expert in that in that era to combat you know the variety of opinions that that sometimes came at me. Well, and I did see a quote that you'd given Randall that you researched seventy uh, three as fastidiously as you had the nineteen twenties. Yeah, I, I mean you have to I, again. It, it all becomes a little bit of a blur, and especially it was important that we really were able to put forward some of the, the musical contours. You know, we're on the verge of some major musical movements in 1973. We're on the verge of punk rock. We're on the verge of disco. And so you really couldn't jump ahead without inhibiting the writers from sort of having a, a story, the story evolve. Yeah. You know, the music has been so amazing. When you have, love them or hate them, the nasty bits playing not even a popular song by Rocket from the Tombs, the right. first great Cleveland punk band, right? But but right. an obscure album track, mm-hmm. right? Right. What kind of fun are you having in choosing those tunes? Well, again, I mean, it was really a lot of fun. And, and I think that, you know, with that in particular, and the Nasty Bits in particular, again, we, we, we wanted to be true to a spirit that was emerging and combating some of this, the, the sentiments of popular music. As far as what love is, we just sort of, we needed in that moment where the, the head of A&R at the label has, is trying to defang them for the sake of popularity when they're going to do their showcase, to have something where that on a dime they could, they could turn it around. I don't need none of your for sweet box. Scorsese, any feedback from him? I mean, obviously, he was one of the pioneer directors in using rock and roll. In, in the movies, as as right. you know, we talked about. Where does his fandom overlap with yours, or do you have arguments about? Oh, I don't think that's the right song. Is there any of that going on? Well, I mean, I think that I think that Marty, what I take from him and carry with me throughout the episodes is is a kind of bold approach to using music. With Marty, I think what he does is he injects boldness into into our activities in terms of not being faint of heart and playing the music loud and being open to changing songs in the midst of a scene and 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 really you know getting at the core spirit of what was and is rock and roll I've got to ask you about Scorsese and, and about Mick Jagger, who has a role as executive producer as well. I love them both dearly, much of their canon, but I would not use the word punk with, with either of them. But, you know, Scorsese was the last waltz, right? Classic rock, the Dylan documentary, and Jagger's Jagger, right? So, so when you're talking to them about, let's have Julian Casablancas sing the Lou Reed part in the Velvet right. song, when you're, when right. you're you know, uh, uh, stuff like that, uh, uh, do they get it? 
Well, I mean, we lay it out in terms of putting together playlists and have things, points of reference, so I think people see the connections. I mean, largely, I think that the, the first season of Vinyl, the understory, I think, speaks to sort of the musical connections that, that drive our characters. So, you know, when you talk about some of the more polished, mainstream rock sounds that may have pervaded work by by, by Scorsese or, or by the Rolling Stones at certain points, it, it does harken back to a certain blues and R&B inspiration that I think maybe that's where we build the bridge to punk rock. How, how does the script factor into incorporating the music? Well, my job is, is often the, the, the starting point is the script. And sometimes there is a musical anchor that the writers have come up with, or sometimes we get involved in discussions with the writers where we try to land on a, a musical character or a musical motif. In that episode, episode, I think it's 106, as far as the on-camera element for the, the David Bowie part of it, that's something that we collectively, we went back and forth a little bit sort of to land both on the right artist and, and also then to land on the, on the proper repertoire. And as the, you know, say as script eight sort of comes, comes to be born in its earliest stages, it starts to then inform say script six because you're saying oh okay here's one of, here here's an element that we have to carry forward i'm thinking about you know the character of xavier who who, who we see first playing life on mars at at zach's daughter's bat mitzvah who then sparked zach to get involved in him as a career artist yeah remake him as a as another bowie right take a look at the love beating up the wrong guy Would you indulge us, Randall, a little bit about your job in general? I mean, okay. when, when we look at your credits, you know, you go back to 95 with kids, and a year later I shot Andy Warhol. Man, you've been on fire, like, from the get-go. So how did you just walk in in the mid-90s and said, you know what, I love music, I'm going to put great music and great TV and great movies? What happened was is that I somehow managed to to graduate from, from college with without any professional direction, as I don't know how it happened. but yeah, um, that never happens. And so a friend and I decided to write a script because we figured that might be a way to f- forestall law school. And we wrote a script about the college radio station, which was, was WBRU in Providence, Rhode Island. And we wrote this script and somehow people got to read it and people were interested in it. And we, we made this movie in 1990. It was called A Matter of Degrees. And we recorded new songs with bands like Yola Tango that you mentioned and the Lemonheads and worked with the Pixies and bands of that era. And we made this movie and did a soundtrack. And it sort of became clear to me that really my primary interest and the most fun I had was making the music on the movie and working together with the filmmakers. And that's where, you know, good fortune settled in. Mm. You know, and I was able to connect with some some contemporary filmmakers who have continued to go on and make movies. I heard a voice saying, what are you trying to prove? I thought about it an hour. I thought about it a minute. And I thought about it 
You know, it seems like in the 90s when you started out, artists were more resistant to allowing movies, television, commercials to use their music because they sort of viewed it as uncool. Now it's like they've done a 180, right? I mean, many artists are using these platforms as a way to reach more listeners. How have you negotiated that divide in terms of convincing artists to license their music while making sure you've got the money to use these songs? Music is the last thing that 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 gets paid for. Oftentimes, big projects, small projects, you're kind of left with what's left uh, in, on many occasions. So, I mean, there always has to be a certain sense of economy, especially when you have movies and 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 shows that have so many songs in them. I've always led with with the quality of work and 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 the the, the value of of the project. So. You know, hopefully that's what allows us to attract the artists that we we hope to have. And like you said, I mean, I think that certainly bands from the 60s and 70s who, who maybe had less of an inclination towards seeing their music synchronized have become more open to it. You know, bands want their music to be heard, and I think they want to sort of maintain a relationship with youth culture, and I think that that's what film and TV allows them to do. I am waiting I am waiting Oh yeah, oh yeah I am waiting I am waiting Oh yeah, oh yeah Waiting for someone to come out of somewhere You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are talking with music supervisor Randall Poster. His most recent project was the HBO series Vinyl. But, Randall, you've done a lot of work over the years with one of my favorite directors, Wes Anderson, Rushmore, Royal Tannenbaums, Moonrise Kingdom, just to name a few. Tell us what that relationship is like. Well, we've been working together since I I met Wes when he was finishing Bottle Rocket, and and I worked with him to, to make the soundtrack to Bottle Rocket. And I would say that since that day, we've been working ev- almost every day. And, and, and really, often in some of the projects, we've been working on the music before there was even a script. And Wes is very specific. At times, we've gone back and forth, whether it's playlists of songs from the British invasion or whether it, it's, you know, trying to find cymbalom players and balilaika orchestras <laughs> to, 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 to score the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's a wonderful dialogue, and I think that the process is what allows us to land on the specific thing that is just perfectly right in our minds for the specific scene. As a moviegoer and a music fan, Randall, what are your inspirations? What are the movies that really use music in, in inventive and creative ways that you go, man, I wish I'd done that, or I wish I was part of that project at some point? Well, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, as as a kid in the dark, really, it was American Graffiti, and it was Hal Ashby's film, Shampoo, mm. particularly, that really made where the light went off and I I came to see that music was just an important component in in filmmaking and and those are the films that still you know kind of take my breath away
And what about your own career, Randall? This is kind of, I know this is a very self-referential question. You know, do you think back on a moment like, man, I got that one right. I'm really, I'm really happy with the way that particular song worked in that particular scene. Well, I mean, there's so many, but, you know, since we're talking about working with Wes, there was a song called Letter Dance by Bobby Fuller that I played for Wes, and um, we, we, we put it in the safe, and we said, God, this is when we got to use it. And, and then we finally had the opportunity to put it at the end of Fantastic Mr. Fox, <laughs> and that was, that was really satisfying. I'm, I'm telling you, now you got me excited about, man, I would love to be the fly on the wall when Randall Poster and Wes Anderson are in the room playing records for each other and going, you got to hear this. We got to use this somewhere. Well, it's become more of a digital kind of bromance. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we still have those. So, you know, we, we still get to spend time together sort of pushing, th- pulling through things. And we've been doing some work preparing for the next movie. And so there is a lot of time running through our shared library, trying to figure out if we missed anything that we've, we've loved in the past that might be relevant to the, to the work at hand. We've been talking to Randall Poster, the music supervisor of the new HBO series Vinyl and countless movies. Randall, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's turn it over to you. What did you think of Vinyl from a music fan's perspective? And what uses of music in film and television do you particularly admire? Call 888-859-1800 and chime in on the air. When we come back, we'll talk rock and the environment with author and activist Bill McKibben. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That's Anoni with Four Degrees, released during last year's Paris Climate Conference. 
In it, the singer imagines the devastating effects of the projected four-degree rise in global temperatures this century. Jim, Earth Day falls every April, and while we don't often think about it in this context, music has an environmental impact just like every other human activity. So today, we're going to take a close look at that relationship between rock music and the environment. We got to start with live music. Think about the energy consumed during these big destination festivals. Coachella, Bonnaroo, Lollapalooza. You need generators to power the whole operation. And of course, the biggest environmental cost comes from just having hundreds of thousands of people driving and flying to and from these sites. Then you have the festival goers who inevitably leave an enormous amount of trash and plastic water bottles behind. You have the cost of bands traveling around the world going on tour. One year of U2's 360-degree tour, for example, was estimated as having the same carbon footprint of a flight to Mars and back. It's extraordinary. As for the recorded music industry, it's easy to imagine where many of those billions of shrink-wrapped plastic jewel cases ended up. I'm guilty for throwing away thousands. You'd think that transitioning to streaming music would improve things, but it turns out it's not that simple. The data still lives on giant physical servers that consume lots of energy. One study estimates that streaming an album 27 times uses the same amount of energy as producing and shipping a physical CD. To help us look deeper into music's connection to the environment, we're joined by author and environmentalist Bill McKibben, who co-founded the grassroots global climate organization 350.org. Bill joins us on the line from Middlebury College in Vermont. Bill, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, what a pleasure to be with you guys. It's an honor to have you. So we just mentioned some of the ways the music industry contributes to climate change. I mean, how concerned should we be about this? What kind of impact do these issues actually have on the environment? Well, look, they have a measurable impact on the environment. The real deeper question, though, is uh, what kind of impact the music itself is going to have on the culture and on our politics. The depth of the climate crisis is so deep. I mean, February just crushed every record for global temperature. We're seeing, uh, as we speak, the biggest die-off of coral reefs in history. We think we may lose 20% of them this year alone. We're in the middle of the greatest crisis humans have ever wandered into. And so what we really need in that crisis is our culture playing the role it needs to play and has played in other movements in order to push this to the very fore and get us to act on it. So, Bill, Greg and I happen to know that you are a super music fan. You remember when activist musicians came together to fight nuclear energy after the Three Mile Island disaster in the 70s. Why hasn't there been an equivalent to the no nukes movement, (laughs) all that energy for the current environmental global crisis? I think the reason that we haven't attacked it in sort of the same depth as we've gone after similar important crises, AIDS crisis, things like that as part of our culture, is that we're just not that used in the world of art to thinking about conflicts that aren't between human beings. Mm -hmm. That's what most of of drama back to the Greeks and music, that's where most of our models come from. And we're in this curious situation now where the real adversary is physics, where it's our ability to deal with the natural world that's at question. I wrote a piece probably 10 years ago saying, where is the art that we need? Where are the librettos? Where are the rock operas? Where are the novels? Having written that, I then was emailed every bad poem by every bad uh, (laughs) ecological poet in the whole world. I mean, why do you think that is? Why aren't artists responding enough? Climate change is 
the biggest thing that humans have ever done, and by a large margin. But it seems so large that each of us seems so small against it. And hence, always the tendency to move on to problems and issues where we really can get something done. Mm-hmm. That's why you know we set out very deliberately about 10 years ago to build a movement, and because movements allow us to feel as if there's enough of us to make some change. As that builds, especially among young people, we're beginning to see more music, but it's time for artists to remember what a role they have to play as troubadours, as message makers, and also as parts of movements. If you look at the civil rights movement, and you guys have done a beautiful job, especially when you've talked about the staple singers and things over the years, of making it clear just how many musicians took it upon themselves to put questions of politics front and center and to put themselves at the service of movements, to be out there raising consciousness, raising money, building uh, fervor. That's more and more and more of what we need. I'll tell you one place where we're beginning to see a serious cool factor, and, and that's in the automotive industry. Elon Musk sold 280,000 of his Tesla 3s last month, even though he hasn't built the car yet. Mm -hmm. Whatever spirit it was that produced little GTO or (laughs) little Deuce Coupe or whatever might be put to work on the Tesla 3. Little GTO, you really look and Three Deuces and a four-speed and a 389. Listen to her tacking up now, listen to her whine. What about us music fans? Is there anything we can do to be better environmentally responsible citizens and listeners? You know, to start with, am I being more environmentally conscious if I buy vinyl, (laughs) if I listen to CDs, or if I stream my music? These are the kind of um, angels on the head of a pin calculations that, I mean, we've now gone through with every possible commodity on earth, paper (laughs) towels versus rags, you know. water uh, bottles and diapers. Exactly. In general, we very much want to move towards a world, I think, where we electrify most things and remove some of the physical product because once you've electrified things, at least you have the possibility of making them work on renewable energy. But the real answer to that question, guys, is at the point we're now at with climate change, individual action doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of difference. I mean, Mm. my house is covered with solar panels. I drove the first hybrid Ford in the state of Vermont. (laughs) I I do my best to be a, you know, pious and virtuous example, but I don't try to fool myself that it's actually doing anything about climate change. Mm -hmm. This is a structural systemic problem, and it's solved, if it's ever going to be solved, when we change the balances of power in this country, in this world, between the fossil fuel industry and everything else. That means that the most important thing an individual can do is not be an individual. It means coming together in the kind of movements that might produce enough political power to stand up to the financial clout of the richest industry the world's ever seen. And that coming together is precisely why music could and should play such an important role. For me, the the most fun part of the whole Paris Climate Conference, which was a big 
Mishigas in many ways. But for me, the most fun part was getting to be the MC <laughs> at a, a benefit concert for 350, one of the first concerts in Paris after the Bataclan massacre. And it was terrific. Patti Smith really put it together. Flea was on hand, and so was that that guy Tom York from Radiohead, who's been a huge yep. help to the climate movement all along. He's been terrific. It was great fun, a uh, great thrill to get to sort of be the MC for a lot of that, and best fun of all to stand there and, uh, you know, get to beat my tambourine on stage <laughs> at the end while <laughs> Patti Smith sang People Have the Power, and boy... That had so many meanings that night that it was almost too much. Bill, we're going to bring Adam Gardner to join the conversation now. He's another example of a musician who's trying to make change in this arena. He's best known to many of our listeners as the guitarist and vocalist of the band Guster, but he's also the co-founder of Reverb, a nonprofit that helps make tours greener and more sustainable. Uh, they've worked with Alabama Shakes, Willie Nelson, The Dead, and more. Adam, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Adam, tell us how and why you started Reverb. So, yeah, my wife and I started Reverb in 2004, kind of coming out of me just feeling how the touring industry was negatively impacting the environment and talked to lots of other bands that felt the same way. And we just kind of shrugged our shoulders at each other and be like, well, it's too bad. It has to be this way. It was really my wife, who's been an environmentalist as long as I've been in music, that said, well, why? No, it doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> Let's change it. And so Reverb was originally started as an organization to help bands be more green on tour. But we quickly realized that the, the real opportunity was to engage all their fans to change their hearts, minds, and actions to take positive movements towards protecting the earth. Really, it's two-pronged. One is greening the tour itself, and it's a lot of it can be, on that front can just be logistics. Coordinating, if it's Dave Matthews Band, biodiesel for their buses and trucks and finding the most sustainably produced local biodiesel supplier, local food for catering, looking at the power consumption of the venue and working with the venues themselves and using the artist's influence to do that looking at waste reduction. By default, the industry has been very disposable, so getting rid of disposables and getting reusables in there. For example, Jack Johnson's last tour, there was no disposables backstage at all. And then on the other front is fan engagement. So we'll, we have someone folded into the tour, just like a guitar tech or a drum tech, but their job is to make sure the tour is green and to set up an eco-village in the front of house where the fans are to engage them. And we bring in local and national nonprofit campaigns We'll bring in some like-minded brands to help make it fun for, for the fans. Of course, you got to remember, the setting is fun. We have to enhance the experience to make this fun for people. We can't be a buzzkill because then that, that won't work at all. When you started this organization more than a decade ago, what did you find the awareness was within the artistic community about this issue and the importance of it and their potential role in it? And how has that changed over that decade? Now, the dialogue has changed a lot. It went from what is the carbon footprint and what's biodiesel to what's the best carbon footprint, what's this I hearing about biodiesel, and, and is it working, and can I use it in this vehicle? We've seen the conversation elevate significantly, both fans and their fans. So a lot of it now is what can we do? It's these questions you're asking, what's the big picture? What's the most important area we should be focusing on? 
Adam, I also want to ask about something that's very close to every musician's heart, the wood that makes their guitar. What is that about? Tell us what's going on there. Sure, yeah, you're referring to our No More Bloodwood campaign. We uh, recently went into uh, Guatemala with members of Maroon 5 and just to learn about the good, bad, and the ugly of logging and how musical instruments are playing a role in it. That we call it the Bloodwood Campaign because it's very reminiscent of Blood Diamonds and all the issues that were happening around that resource, both environmentally and socially. So it's the same idea. It's organized criminals going into these protected, they're supposed to be, you know, protected rainforest and World Heritage sites and poaching these highly sought-after exotic rare woods, some of which are for furniture and flooring and all sorts of wood products, but also some of which are being used in musical instruments. And that, obviously, yes. It was very, when that became clear to me, it was very easy for me to throw up the bat signal to all the artists we've been working with going, hey, we're doing all this stuff out on the road. Did you know the very instruments we're playing could be ripped out of a rainforest from slave labor? We're doing a lot of work on that front, both with awareness within the music community and manufacturers, but also legislation as well. But Adam, are, are we winning? Festivals dominate Bonnaroo, Coachella, Lollapalooza, right? Bill was making this point earlier. Bill, Bill has me completely depressed but revolutionary right now. <laughs> There's nothing I can do as an individual. What we need is nothing short of a global revolution. Are the kind of small actions that are happening in, in the music world as well-intentioned as they are, are they doing anything? I think they are, and I think the biggest part is, is changing those hearts and minds because they do need to join the revolution. If they're not feeling the urge or aware of what the issues are truly, then we're not going to get there. So I think it is really important to chip away. Are we single-handedly going to do it through concerts? No, but we can play a significant role along with organizations like 350.org to really get people on board with this movement. Why we're called Reverb is it starts with engaging the artists and then they reverberate their passion for protecting the planet and our species, frankly, to their fans, and their fans do something about it at the show. They take that home with them and to their workplaces, their schools, their communities. I completely agree with Adam. It's very important to do all the kind of individual things anyway. Don't get me wrong. But he's right. The real payoff here is the fact that when people are at those concerts and they see the booths where people are doing, you know, have been set up to do activism and where they can gather petitions and register voters. Culture is education. Education is culture. These are the great educators of our time, and that's why it's so good that thanks to people like Adam, they're increasingly on side and, and working hard. Let's talk about the music itself. Bill, you said earlier that musicians need to do a better job of joining movements and addressing climate change in their art. But are there any examples of songs that speak to the environmental issue in an eloquent way? Well, there's a whole, of course, series of songs from the protest era that we've kind of adopted and used. But there hasn't been as much great music about the environment as one would hope. I mean, when people think about music, about nature, uh, it's possible that they may uh, end up kind of summoning up the vision of John Denver, you know, in the Aspen Meadows or something. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy. But what we need really is to um, go back in time somehow and revive what was the very promising beginning 
of an environmental pop music for the Library of America. I did this massive doorstop of an anthology called American Earth, and it was the greatest American environmental writing since Thoreau. So, mm-hmm. you know, John Muir and Rachel Carson and Wendell Berry and on and on. But in the middle of it, when we got up to uh, 1971, right in a row, because they were released within a few months of each other, were the lyrics to the two greatest environmental songs that popular music has yet produced. Very, very different out of very, very different places, but both so resonant. The first Big Yellow Taxi from Joni Mitchell, Mm -hmm. written in a kind of burst of inspiration after walking out on the balcony of a Waikiki hotel room and seeing the spread of concrete as far up and down the beach as she could see. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. The other, even deeper, I know that you guys would always argue for The Velvet Underground and Nico is the greatest album of all time. But at least in the conversation is what's going on and Marvin Gaye. Oh, mm-hmm. sure. What yeah. made it so remarkable was kind of how different it was. You know, Barry Gordy at Motown not only didn't want to release the whole album when Marvin Gaye played for him Mercy, Mercy Me, the ecology song, Gordy said he didn't even know what the word ecology meant. Mm. He had <laughs> nothing to do with this. And instead, out comes this unbelievable masterpiece. And out of the absolute center of urban America, I mean, this is a story of a returning soldier from Vietnam looking around the country he's come back to. Where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north and south and east. Whoa, oh, mercy, mercy me. It's an amazing song, and I was reminded of its power when our very good friends at the Hip Hop Caucus, a wonderful campaigning organization led by the Reverend Lennox Yearwood, put out an album called Home, and it's a collection of original and cover songs of the greatest songs about the environment that there had been. The cover version of Mercy Me that Anthony Smith sings is amazing. And then when we had 400,000 people marching in the street in New York a year ago, the biggest demonstration about anything in this country in a very long time, that song and her version in particular was the soundtrack. more of that because the environmental movement's been awfully good at going at that part of the human brain that really likes bar graphs and pie charts (laughs) and not so good at the other side of our brain and our heart. Adam Gardner, do you have a discussion along those lines with the bands you work with through Reverb? I mean, about writing songs that can influence a culture? You know, it's interesting. We've often worked with artists outside of the art itself and more about using 
their audience and that special relationship between them and their fans to to influence a large swath of people to make changes. As far as the music itself, there are folks that are doing that, but not on the level that we're seeing the actions that they're taking on their tours. It's a daunting task, first of all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do I write a song that's going to change the world? But uh, not be preachy while doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's the challenge. Everything I read is global warming going green. I don't know what all this means, but it seems to be I've chosen the path of more, well, how do we do this? How do we just show ourselves not as preachy or being experts in this area as, as an artist, but just being passionate and enthusiasts about the positive solutions that we all could be taking and being that ex- living example on tour to the thousands of people that you play to every night. That, to me, is where it's at. And it's less of a Herculean task to be like, I'm going to sit down and write a global anthem that's going to change the world. I definitely encourage anybody who feels that they can take it on to do that. We've been talking with Adam Gardner, guitarist and vocalist for Guster and co-founder of Reverb. Adam, we want to thank you for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much, Jim and Greg. It was a pleasure to be here. And we also want to thank Bill McKibben, an author and environmentalist and the co-founder of 350.org. Bill, thank you so much for being on Sound Opinions. All right, gentlemen, what fun. Greg, I think one of the big takeaways of talking to Bill and Adam was that there's not enough music today about the sad state of the environment. Undeniably, this was an issue in the 70s, right? Neil Young, classic, after the gold rush, 1970. Look at Mother Nature on the run, right? And the birds in 1970 as well. That song, Hungry Planet. Mm -hmm. Roger McGuinn is singing about, we've made the earth so angry it decides to set itself on fire (laughs) to punish us. But there are plenty of more recent examples. You know, St. Julian, Julian Cope, Psychedelic, Seer, and Sage, that 1991 concept album, Peggy Suicide. And Neil Young, I said, he was there in 1970, he's still there now, his new album uh, forthcoming is supposed to be about the environment, but in 2003, Greendale was a concept album largely about the environment, that song, Be the Rain, man, save the planet for another day, he's begging us. Yeah, Neil's always been there with that kind of stuff. And I feel that same way about Gorillaz. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of songs that Damon Albarn's group has written that address this subject. Every planet we reach is dead, oh green world, super fast jellyfish. I 
always loved Talking Heads' Nothing But Flowers. Mm. I always thought that was kind of a whimsical look at what happens when everything goes back to its most primitive state. We're not going to have microwaves anymore. No more Pizza Hut. You know, the Pizza Hut that used to stand there, it's covered by daisies now. It's kind of like the flip side of Big Yellow Taxi, that Joni Mitchell song. Once there were parking lots, now it's a peaceful oasis. You got it, you got it. This was a Pizza Hut, now it's all covered with daisies. And speaking of that Joni Mitchell song that uh, Bill McKibben brought up, I always thought the modern update of that was My City Was Gone, that Pretender song. Chrissy Hine. talking about Akron getting paved over. I went back to Ohio and I always had a soft spot, Jim, for Spirits, Nature's Way. It's <laughs> one of those songs. It's a real sweet song, from a very earnest song from the 60s. And the flip side of that, when we talk about silly songs along the lines of, yes, Don't Kill the Whale. I love Don't Kill the Whale. Cool Keith, of all people. You know, the, the guy we know from being the scatological, surreal, trippiest, craziest MC in Dr. Octagon and his other projects, writing a very earnest song called Trees in 2006. Trees are dying. Trees are dying. Trees are dying. Information is more concealed. Trees are dying. It's time to turn to the listeners. We want to hear from you. Are there other great environmental protest songs that you would put on your list? And how does the environment affect your choices as a musical consumer? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Coming up, we'll review the new album from Brooklyn Art Punk's Parquet Courts. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions, that is a little bit of a song called One Man, No City by Parquet Courts from the new album, Human Performance. Uh, Greg, depending on how you count, this is the third proper album from Parquet Courts or the fifth overall. I'll explain that in a minute. But first, go back to 2010. 
This group came together in Brooklyn, although several of its members were native Texans. They had moved out east, put this band together, had various pedigrees in other groups before that, debuted with sort of an indie DIY cassette-only original release, but really began to make a mark in the music world in 2012 with the album Light Up Gold, and that got reissued on a bigger label in 2013. We had them on the radio show at that point two guitars, bass, and drums, the classic format. Every time you think you've heard everything guitar, bass, and drums can do, a group comes along, you know, the Strokes in the early 2000s, parquet courts in this millennia, having that sort of an impact. Um, They sort of took a break after that big album breakthrough, put out two records which are sort of semi-official releases. One was as parquet courts, P-A-R-K. K-A-Y, not P-A-R-Q-U-E-T. Now comes this album. As I said, it's called Human Performance. What are they doing? We'll get into that. First, let's play a tune from it. This is the song Dust, lead-off track on Human Performance by Parquet Courts on Sound Opinions. It sneaks in ignored, it stacks up around, it follows, now swallow, you're buying it now. Suffocate, suffocate That is Dust from the new Parquet Courts album, Human Performance. Dust is everywhere, Jim. Sweep. Sweep. (laughs) Over and over again. And uh, that kicks off this record in fine fashion. I think this sort of futility of keeping up with things, the overwhelming nature of city life. These uh, four guys kind of have captured that New York City vibe very well on this record, the whole idea of how lonely it can be. I think that's a mood that sort of hangs heavy over this record, particularly the yin and yang back-and-forth conversation that is being had by Andrew Savage and Austin Brown. Savage is is writing these kind of deep, melancholy breakup songs, and Brown is sort of saying, keep your chin up, buddy. It'll be okay. You're going to make it through. Yeah. I really love this band. I think they got miscast when they released that Light Up Gold record with the song Stoned and Starving. A lot of people took them as slacker wise guys, just kind of sarcastic and kind of well, you know, figuring things out, but you not, think that's no real purpose. They lead off this record with a song about dust getting everywhere, so sweep, sweep. Well, but but at the same time, I think they're feeling it, it's futile. They keep repeating that because it's a futile effort, and I think in some ways they're well into adulthood in this record and, and feeling the weight of that. I, I hear that 
sense of darkness in the way the music is being presented. It used to be kind of ramshackle and, you know, sort of pavement-esque in the way it was presented. Now you've got a, a darker coding in the music. It's not the best album they've ever made. I still think Light Up Gold is, is a masterpiece, uh, but it's darn good. It's a buy-it record for me. I agree that it's a buy-it record, Greg. I think it's a, it's a nice maturation from Light Up Gold. That's still their best, but this one really takes them in some new directions, whether it's the slower tempos, whether it's the musical icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. We've got some jointy piano happening there. we got a nice droning organ. We've even got some sound effects. You hear the cars honking, right? This is a band that's about groove. I love their take on that New York City subway train rhythm. We take it back to the Velvet Underground. We update it with the strokes. It's alive and well here with Parquet Courts. First of all, you know, they got testy with us when we had them on the show asking about this slacker question because Mm -hmm. that was the word everybody threw at them. Don't get me wrong. I think it takes a particular kind of genius Mm -hmm. to write, you know, to write a great, great song about how much dust accumulates in the apartment Mm -hmm. because you live in the city. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do to fix it? You sweep. I just think that that's brilliant. That's not lazy. Not the way that they no, do it. Not. not with the hooks. You know, slacker is a approach to life. I don't think it's an insult. You're talking about a dialogue going on between a Savage and Brown in terms of the lyrics. More important than the dialogue between the two songwriters and the lyrics is the dialogue with those guitars. This is, you know, the Velvet Underground of I Heard Her Call My Name, that sonic eruption, almost just discordant chaos. Updated years later in New York by the Voidoids. Robert Quine, that style of guitar. These two guys are attacking each other, seeing who can be more ferocious than the other. I love this record. An enthusiastic double buy it for both of us. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Gina from Grand Junction, Colorado. Happy Tax Day. I'm a CPA, and today marks the end, for better or for worse, of the most stressful time of the year for me. I loved your Tax Day playlist. It was a welcome break from the grind, and I never heard of uh, Johnny Cash's After Taxes, and it made me laugh so hard. Cause from those total wages earned down to that net amount that's due, I feel a painful sense of loss between the two. Mm-hmm. There goes that bracelet for her arm. Mm-hmm. There goes that new fence for my farm. There goes that brand new Pontiac. My favorite song about money has always been Greenback Dollar by the Kingston Trio because it touches on two of my favorite topics, money and music. Bye-bye. And I don't give a about a Greenback Dollar Spend it fast as I can For a wailing song and a good guitar The only thing that I understand the only thing that I understand. Sue, I am so proud of Bruce Springsteen. 
for boycotting North Carolina's bias laws. I am the parent of a gay child, and I think the only way we're going to change minds is to change opinions. Thanks. My name is Ruth Ann Cage, calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. My comment is about Bruce Springsteen and Brian Adams canceling their North Carolina concert. I just want to say how incredible I find it that they are lauded for doing so, yet if someone were to do that, like someone who owns a bakery follows their conscience, they're threatened with losing their business. Thank you. I'm Robert, calling from St. Petersburg, Florida. I think it's ridiculous that Bruce Springsteen would punish his fans in North Carolina for a political view. I absolutely agree that if he wanted to make a statement, that he would have gone and made a bigger statement, called out the legislators there if that's what he believed. Hi, my name is Rini, who lives in North Carolina. I think it's great that Bruce Springsteen did not come to North Carolina. I say hit him in the pocketbook, because money talks, bullshit walks. Yes, this is Mark from North Carolina. I think, quite honestly, a lot of that stuff is politically or commercially motivated. And it's more for their own personal benefit and then getting themselves in the spotlight. I don't feel that they really have a stake in this. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is David from North Carolina. I just spent another afternoon mowing the lawn listening to Sound Opinion. Now, about this time last year, you all played an episode uh, focused on Against Me, where you gave me an opportunity to hear for the first time a heartfelt story from someone in a transgender lifestyle. One, it was great for someone who hasn't known a lot of transgender people to hear that story, but also you introduced me to a great band because I was so impressed with the songs they played. Recently, she has a show coming up next month here in North Carolina and made a statement about how she is not going to cancel because they're going to use that opportunity to educate and make it a celebration. Thanks a lot. Hi, Sound Opinions. My name is Christine. And I was listening to the show today. I had a ticket to the concert. I was highly disappointed that he canceled the concert because I love Bruce. However, I do think it was the right thing to do. It would have been awesome if Bruce had done a free concert on the steps of the Capitol. However, I feel that the more economically pinched the government of North Carolina will feel, the more open-minded they will become. Thank you very much for taking my call. Bye-bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.